the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned in to AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando, a good place to be on your radio dial. Uh, let me introduce our engineer, Pete Paquette. He gets us on the air, and uh, Andrew Herdliska produces the show. I want to introduce you to Dr. Jonathan Pennington, professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. He also uh, is the pastor of spiritual formation at Sojourner East Church in Louisville. But we're going to talk about his new book, Come and See, The Journey of Knowing God Through Scripture. Dr. Pennington, welcome to Orlando. It's uh, so nice to meet you. Uh, Thank you. It's such a joy and honor to be with you. Tell me about this book. How did it come about? Yeah. Well, you know, my life really exists in this happy place between uh, being a professor and being a pastor. And I've been both over the years in various ways. And right now, I'm really basically doing both of them full time. And this book really comes out of that intersection place of using my understanding of of the Bible and the importance of the Bible and just helping people, regular people uh, in the church, understand a little bit more about how to read it well. That's really the goal of the book. Uh, Tell me about the introduction. Starting out road trip exclamation point. What What's happening? Yeah. So, you know, um, the idea of a journey or a, a trip is a, is a really common journey in the Bible. People are physically taking trips, of course, but also it's a, it's a vision or an image for the walk of our lives with God. And so I'm, I'm using that idea and particularly kind of the idea of a road trip of three friends who are, let's imagine, taking a trip from Orlando to Seattle or something, and it's a long trip, and so they can't do it in one, uh, you know, one sitting, and so they each have to take turns driving, and on this drive, um, you know, they, they're friends, so they're different from each other, but they also have a lot of the shared interests and, and loves and passions, and so as each of them take turns driving, each of them you know, the rules of the road are whoever's driving gets to control the radio station. Of course, they should be listening to your radio station, of course, all the time, right? But <laughs> but whoever's driving gets to, li- gets to determine the podcast or the radio station. So each of these friends represents a kind of a different approach to reading the Bible. Not contradictory, but they each bring their own kind of set of questions and their own approaches to reading the Bible. And each of those approaches help us see the Bible in a certain way uh, as we're on our own journey of faith. Jonathan, I'm uh, intrigued with these six side trips. Uh, Ah. So let's uh, have you explain the first side trip. Maps and seeing, understanding different literary genres. Uh, What does that mean? What's what's happening? Yeah, (laughs) sounds kind of fancy. Um, Yeah, so the idea, of course, is that when you're on a on a trip, a lot of times you take the kind of spontaneous road, you know, side trip and you see, you know, world's largest ball of yarn right there, you know, exit 32 or whatever. <laughs> and so that using that kind of image, what I've peppered throughout the book, which, you know, the big idea of the book is how do you read the Bible well? But I'm also very interested in, and I teach uh, in a lot of contexts on this question of how do you really know what you know? <laughs> you know, like how, how can you be confident in, in how do you grow in sort of confidence in knowing what you know? And there's a fancy word for it, epistemology. It's an old idea, actually. And so what I'm doing in these little side trips is I'm just kind of saying, let's think a little bit about the, you know, the, the 
process of coming to know something, right, including the Bible. And so the idea of maps, oh, it's such a fascinating one to think about how different maps, you could make a different map of the same area. Again, let's just take Orlando or the I-4 corridor. You could make a map of all the power lines. You could make a map of all the exits. You can make a map of all the uh, water parks. <laughs> you can make a map of all the churches, whatever it is. And every map is going to help you see the area in a little different way. And so I, in this little side trip, I just kind of talk about this issue of different maps and how different maps um, is, a, is a good image to, to just encourage us to humility when we're reading the Bible and we're reading other people as well, to recognize that various people are going to help us see different things uh, about maybe the same truth of what's going on in the Bible. Now, in that same area, the first stage, here's side trip number two, Jonathan. Reading in St. Petersburg and other places, avoiding common interpretive mistakes. Mm-hmm. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really interesting thing. Some of your listeners may have been on a mission trip before or maybe you know, gone to Mexico to help build a church or, or whatever it is, or even maybe just on a vacation, maybe you've been to another culture. But when you go to another culture, and especially if you live there for a little while, one of the things you learn is that a lot of the assumptions that we have, including about God and the Bible, are not necessarily wrong, but every culture has its kind of things that they value. And therefore, we see certain things in the Bible that are influenced by the way our own particular culture talks about them. And that's not necessarily bad. But again, there's a call to kind of humility to recognize, huh, you know, just the way I see it isn't necessarily the same way that everybody sees it. And the example I'm giving there is uh, the example of the prodigal son, a famous story that we know from Luke 15. And it's a, and the little example I'm giving comes from a, a professor, another New Testament professor, who is teaching the prodigal son to states to uh, students in the United States, and then he also was teaching it to students in St. Petersburg, Russia, some years ago. And he noticed that the different set of students observed some little different things about this story that we know, the prodigal son, because of their own culture, particularly that the Russian students who had were aware of like the reality of famine and were aware of like um, what happens if someone tries to live independently from their from their family. And so they observed certain things about the story. Now, you know, we don't need to get too complex because the whole point is just again a call to humility, a call to recognize, huh, there's a lot of help in reading people that are just outside of my own culture and just outside of my own way of thinking about the Bible, because a lot of times other Christians and other times and cultures have insights that we may not have. My guest, he's in Louisville. His name is uh, Jonathan Pennington. Uh, We're talking about his book, Come and See, The Journey of Knowing God Through Scripture. We have advanced to the second stage of the journey, uh, and we've uh, got a third side trip here, Jonathan. Our right and left brains. Oh boy, I want to hear about this. The contact. <laughs> oh, I wish I could. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> then, then it's the contact context of the church's tradition, traditional reading. Uh, uh, tell us about uh, side trip three. Yeah. So, oh boy, this is such a fascinating topic. I mean, I'll have to be brief here. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting work. Uh, done on what's really going on in the complexity of the human brain. Of course, we never really understand fully, um, but one of the most dominant and really helpful perspectives right now uh, comes from a guy named Ian McGilchrist, and he points out that it seems to be the way that our brains are designed that we have two different kind of ways that we pay attention. Sometimes we're paying attention, or really they're both happening at the same time, we're paying attention to the big picture, and we're also paying attention to details, right? And this is what makes humans, as made by God, able to do so many amazing things, is that we can actually do really detailed things like, you know, threading a needle. And we can also, like, be aware of, like, a sense of, like, predators in the area or something. And the point of this is that this is the way God's made us, is that our brains have these two different kinds of attention, and both of them are really, really beneficial for all of our lives, but in this context, we're talking about reading the Bible. 
And in the context of reading the Bible, it means we, we pay attention to the words. We really care about what God has said in the Bible, and we pay close attention uh, to the details of a text. And at the same time, we need to be always aware of the whole canon of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments together, and, and bigger theological ideas. And good reading of the Bible is kind of aware always of both the details and the big picture and kind of being willing to go back and forth between those two things, just like God has made our brains to do. So that's that's the idea of that side trip. Now we've got a side trip number four. Two T-Rexes and the gestalt shift, the context of creedal orthodoxity, Creedal reading. Okay, Jonathan, it's all yours, but I, I can't help you with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I, I do a lot of interviews on the book, and nobody has ever really asked me about all the side trips. So I'm so thankful because this is, I mean, this isn't the main point of the book, but these are these are fun little things in the book. Um, I just actually was talking about this in a sermon, believe it or not, recently, and just hearing it isn't going to make it as effective. I'd encourage to, to your to your listeners, once they're not driving, to, to Google these images and see what I'm see what I'm saying. But the basic idea is that if you can just imagine sometime where you've like seen a picture one way, and then sometimes pictures are designed that you can like see it a different way. There's a famous one, like where you see this pencil drawing of a, whether you see it as an old woman or a young lady. Um, This is called a gestalt shift when you you see a picture. Maybe your listeners might remember some time ago, like the those eye bender pictures that were all the rage, probably in the eighties or nineties, where you could kind of like, if you focused on them, then you could like see like a three D image. It's kind of like that. And the idea of a gestalt shift is that sometimes it's a term from psychology, and it means that a lot of times you could be looking at one thing, and then when somebody says, "Actually, here's what's going on here." then it's like you see it in a way you did not see it before, whether it's the constellations in the sky or, like I said, a picture. Um, and the idea of the two T-Rexes is a, is a funny thing. You know, your listeners will have to Google it later. But it's from a nativity scene that is popular, at least where I live. I see a lot of, like, these black uh, – these are these white cutout pictures at Christmas time in people's yards. And if you look at it, this one that's real popular closely – Instead of looking like Mary and Joseph, it actually looks like two dinosaurs that are like fighting with each other. <laughs> mm. and so, so the whole the whole point of it is that again, we need help a lot of times to understand what we're seeing. And the point of this side trip in the book is that, uh, that theology and our statements of faith and doctrines um, these are ways that help us make sense of what the Bible is actually saying. And we can when we are open to like what the church has taught throughout history about what the Bible is saying. And it's like, we have, we can have this gestalt shift. We can like, Oh, that's what it means. Right. And so that's, that's the idea of that little side trip. Dr. Jonathan Pennington is with us from Louisville. We're talking about his book, come and see Uh, when we come back, we jump into the third stage of the journey. This is the Pat Williams Saturday power hour. It's AM 990 FM 101.5. The word in Orlando We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington uh, in Louisville. The book, Come and See. Jonathan, there's, there's something woven through here. Uh, about three friends. Uh, can you explain how all that is tied together? What's what's that about? Yeah, thanks. So uh, this is the big idea of the book, really, is that when we're growing in our in our journey throughout our lives of learning to understand who God is through reading the Bible well, the image I'm using is that imagine it like three friends going on a long road trip together, and each of these three friends kind of bring a certain kind of perspective. They bring a set of questions, a a set of skills even to reading the Bible well. And I've given these three friends names, and their names represent or they're connected to this idea of different ways of reading. So the first one is Ingrid, and she represents what we'll call an informational kind of reading, which I'll explain in a second. Tom, the second friend, represents a theological kind of reading. And then Taylor uh, represents a, a, a transformational kind of reading. And so the point is that each of them are really valuable um, sets of questions to ask of the Bible. So informational questions 
are like, what about the historical background of the book? And and how is this um, letter to Romans, for example, from the Apostle Paul, how, you know, how does he structure it? Are there certain different things going on in different chapters of the book or something? Tom, this theological friend, he helps us say, you know what, um, how the church has like the Apostles' Creed, how they've described what the Bible teaches, or like whatever church you go to, probably has a doctrinal statement. Well, that doctrinal statement's really important. It doesn't replace the Bible, but it does help us read the Bible in a way that we understand is probably the best way to read it, right? And then Taylor, this transformational friend, is reminding us always, you know, when we read the Bible, we're not just trying to get a bunch of data. We're not just trying to have a bunch of more thoughts or information about God. Those are important, but God is really inviting us and calling us to actually become more like Christ to, by the power of the Spirit to to be Jesus' disciples and therefore to have our lives be transformed. And so the whole point is that these three friends are all really valuable. Like we need all three of them when we read the Bible. But unfortunately, and I go to a lot of different churches, unfortunately, some churches maybe do one or two of those well and maybe kind of neglect the other. Um, maybe they're really good on talking about how to apply the Bible, but maybe they're not as good at thinking about like, how it connects to like the theology of the church. Or maybe they're really good about the data about the Bible, the information, but don't ever really get to the application part, the transformational part. So the idea is we need all three of these friends. They all provide something really crucial on the long journey of our lives of reading the Bible to know God better. Jonathan Pennington is with us explaining this book that has just come out. Come and see. All right, Jonathan, we've arrived at the third stage of the journey and we have a fifth side trip. Metaphors we read by the posture of reading scripture. What's that all about? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, the idea is that it's related to some of the other side trips, if uh, your listeners have heard some of the things I said before. But the idea is that, um, you know, the way that we frame or the way that we describe um, something that we see or our experience has a big shape on how we interpret it. So, for example, if I were counseling, so I, I'm a pastor and I counsel people a lot. And if a couple came in and the couple was having a conflict and they're thinking, you know, they're really frustrated with each other. And and I hear them talking about their relationship and they think about the relationship primarily in financial terms. They use a metaphor of like, I can imagine the wife or the husband saying to the other or saying to me as their counselor, um, I just don't feel like my return on investment is very good in this relationship. Like I'm doing all the work and then I'm not getting anything back. Well, that kind of way of thinking is a metaphor. It's a, it's a way of framing the relationship. And it's not necessarily wrong. It may be right or wrong or helpful or not. But a lot of times what's really beneficial in our spiritual journeys and in our lives is to sometimes think about a different metaphor, a different way of thinking. So like what if instead of thinking about marriage relationship as a, in financial terms, what if you thought about it? more in terms of, uh, say, friendship, that in this, that the husband and wife can both ask themselves, in what ways am I being a good friend to the other, or what ways am I not being a good friend? And that shift of metaphor can really make a huge difference in how we experience the relationship. It's really powerful. It's the way God has made us. And so the whole idea of this kind of side trip as we think about the Bible is that, again, um, the, the kind of frame, the metaphors we use to understand um, our own lives and what's going on in the Bible make a big difference in how we understand who God is. And, you know, your listeners will have to read the book to understand more of what I'm saying there. But that's kind of the idea of the power of metaphors or the power of framing in our lives. Now we have a six-side trip, knowing through rituals, the Holy Spirit in reading Scripture. I want to hear about this, Jonathan. Yeah, this is very interesting, especially maybe for uh, the tradition, you know, the more kind of evangelical tradition that men, that I'm in and that many of our listeners are probably in. The idea of ritual sounds really scary. 
<laughs> you know, so for many people, ritual is like a bad word, right? But um, if I could kind of use lowercase r ritual to talk about it, the idea of ritual is just the fact that God has made us with bodies, right? We're not just brains in a vat. Like we have bodies and our bodies are actually, you know, this crucial part of our creativeness, our createdness. I mean, God's made us with bodies. Our bodies are not a an inconvenience or a hassle or a second thought. You know, this is who we are as humans. We're embodied creatures. Part of the value of that is seeing that God himself became human. Um, he took on a real body, uh, and God the Son did in Jesus. So the point of that is that what we do with our bodies, like habits, um, whether it's diet or exercise or um, how we you know, live in various ways, those things actually affect us because that's how God has made us. Our bodies are not irrelevant to our faith. They're actually part of it. And so the idea of rituals is that we it, it actually matters the kind of things we do with our bodies, such as a simple example is if you're able physically, it's a good thing to kneel, I think, to kneel or to get on your knees when you pray. It's not a magical thing. It's not a requirement from God that we get on our knees to pray. But the idea that a lot of people have observed, theologians and you know, pastors and psychologists and others, is that if you, were, if you do get on your knees to pray, that actually affects how you're thinking about praying. You see, in other words, it's not irrelevant. Our bodies are not irrelevant to what we do or just the fact of like, going to church regularly. That really does matter as opposed to just logging into church, you know, or watching online. What you do with your physical body made by God shapes you. It shapes your faith. It it transforms you itself. Not by you know, not separate from our thinking, but it's part of how God has made us. So the point of this whole part of the book is think about when you're thinking about reading reading the Bible, you know, your what you do with your body actually matters. Um it's part of how God has made us. Jonathan, I want you to uh, tell us a little bit more about the Holy Spirit and why it seems to be so neglected, but yet is so vital uh, to any Christian. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I talk about this a little bit in the last part of the book. Yeah, um, you know, the Holy Spirit um, is obviously the third person of the Trinity, and part of the what the Scriptures teach us about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does is that He is the one who inspires scripture. So in other words, the the authority of the Bible in our lives comes from the fact that it's, even though it was written by humans, it's not written only by humans. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually led those humans to speak what God is saying, to write down what God is saying. So that's really important. But it's not just in the creation of the Bible that the Holy Spirit matters. The Holy Spirit matters in our lives now, the Bible teaches, to open our eyes to see to enable us to grasp who God is, to um, be empowered to actually live differently, to actually obey and to follow Jesus. And so this is why when we think about the Bible we re- and we study the Bible, we really have to be thinking about and, and praying that the Holy Spirit would be present to what we're doing. It's not just a mental thing. It's not just an intellectual thing to read the Bible. I mean, you can just read it that way. But if you actually want to read it as God has intended, the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial in illuminating, in empowering, in bringing us to repentance, in teaching us. Jesus said in the upper room on the the night in which he was betrayed, he said, I will send the Spirit, and he will guide you into all truth. And so the point is, whenever we're reading the Bible, we need to be humbly asking God to teach us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan, your epilogue is called The Final Destination. Uh, What are you writing there? Yeah, so the whole image of the book is that we're friends on a journey, the journey of knowing God through Holy Scripture. But I want to just emphasize at the end of the book that this isn't just a set of skills to develop. It's not just like a one-time thing. Okay, now I read the Bible correctly. Now I'm done. Our goal is actually to know God personally, and that is a lifelong journey where we are continually going back and rereading the same Bible passages and 
seeing God in a more deep way. And and so I, the whole point of that last epilogue is just to say, hey, you know, don't think of, even though I'm trying to give you some skills to read the Bible in this book, don't think of it as just um, a bunch of skills to acquire, like improving your golf game or something, but think of it as a lifelong journey of actually coming into a deepening and ever-deepening relationship with the God who made you. And so the, the final destination is not skills, but actually God himself. Dr. Jonathan Pennington has been our guest. Go get his book. It's a good one. Come and see the journey of knowing God through Scripture. We have more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on AM 990, FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Come and See, The Journey of Knowing God Through Scripture. Curtis Chang, he's in San Jose, California. He's our guest, consulting faculty member of Duke Divinity School, His book is out. It's called The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Curtis, welcome to Orlando. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me about your book. How did it come about? Why is it important? Well, uh, I think because we are in the middle of an anxiety epidemic. Uh, the rates of anxiety are skyrocketing for all age generation, uh, age groups, but especially for our young people. Um, you know, there's 30% of teen girls, according to the National Institutes of Health, 30% of all teen girls have contemplated suicide at some point in the past year because of their struggles with anxiety and depression. And then those, you know, there's a mirroring behind every. Uh, teen girls struggling that much are two, you know, parents who are all feeling anxious about their anxious child. And that's just one snapshot. You just look more broadly at all the different anxieties we have about politics, about economics, about our culture, and so forth, as well as just the very personal anxieties about our health, about our relationships, how well our kids are doing. Um, we've always had anxiety, but I think anxiety in particular in this moment uh, is at an all-time high, and all the studies show that. And so what I wrote the book was to try to equip Christians with a different way to respond to their anxiety than the typical messages they're getting, both in the church and in the broader, wider, secular society, because I think Scripture has actually a different way, a more life-giving way, of responding to, to anxiety, which, which may be surprising, which may even be surprising for people who have, are, you know, are in the church and hear the typical standard Christian messages, which I think have some truth but are also missing something really important. Curtis, your first chapter is called <clears throat> A Surprising Opportunity. Uh, anything more to add there? Do you want to expand on that? Well, I think it's surprising, and it's a surprising opportunity because we really don't often think about anxiety as an opportunity for spiritual growth. We're instead uh, really have been taught mostly to think of anxiety as a problem that we're supposed to make go away. And, you know, in the Christian circles, uh, that can often come in the form of pray anxiety away that anxiety is a problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a character flaw or maybe even a sign of lack of faith. Maybe even in some circles, could be even a sin. And so there was, so then if it's a problem, then we have to get rid of it. We have to eliminate it. And so in some Christian circles, it's pray anxiety away. Uh, other Christian circles maybe don't stigmatize anxiety quite as a sin or a flaw. But they'll say, but it's still a problem to make it go away, and then it's just outsourced to secular mental health. And so rather than pray anxiety away, it's prescribe anxiety away, prescribing with therapy or medication. And let me be clear that I actually think Christians ought to take advantage 
when appropriate, uh, of therapy and medication. I've done so myself. Um, but even in the prescribed anxiety away approach, um, it's still viewed as a problem. It's still viewed as a problem to make go away. And what I want to argue for, based on my own experience, my own experience as an anxious person, as somebody who's grown up with anxiety, is that while anxiety does have problematic aspects to it, for sure, anxiety can be a problem. It is not just a problem, but rather it can be and is meant to be uh, some of the most profound opportunities for spiritual growth that, that Christians have. And not just as an opportunity for us to like pray so that God takes it away, but actually an opportunity for us to know ourselves better through the Holy Spirit, for ourselves to understand the real truths of the gospel, like what is it the gospel promises, and what, and most importantly, what doesn't it promise? And then finally, what is our like ultimate aim in life? Like anxiety actually, in a surprising way, clarifies all that, but it takes us to re, uh, a process to reorient our own relationship to anxiety from something that we're trying to always push away, make away, and rather uh, view it as a doorway that we have to enter to go through anxiety, not to go away or around it. Now, <clears throat> I want you to get to topic two, the blueprint versus the architect. What's that mean? Well, that gets to one of the opportunities um, that I believe for spiritual growth that anxiety has. Um, so I describe blueprint versus architect versus you know, a blueprint is like a scenario of the future. A blueprint is something that you're going to build, something you're going to build in the future. Anxiety is like a blueprint, except that it's a funny blueprint. It's a blueprint not of what you're going to gain, really what you're going to lose. That's what anxiety is. Anxiety is the fear of some future loss. It's in, in, you have a vision of something that you may lose in the future. Um, and this was true for me. I, I, as somebody who grew up with anxiety and who suffered from anxiety as an adult, in fact, I'm a former pastor uh, of an evangelical covenant church in California. The reason why I'm a former pastor uh, is because my career ended because of anxiety. I write about this in, in the book. I suffered a devastating experience of, of anxiety. And my, the way my, uh, why I suffer from anxiety is constantly I was rehearsing blueprints of the future of potential loss. And then my mind would get stuck in all these blueprints, and I would try desperately to uh, secure a different blueprint. And that can be what a lot of Christians think is the Christian response to anxiety. It's like, if I have a blueprint of the future that is filled with fearful loss, then what I need is a different blueprint from God that secures me against that loss, that says, oh, this loss will not happen. And the problem with that is sometimes God gives us a future that, that prevents us from that loss, but not always. Uh, any, anybody who's listening who's lived life for any, any length of time as a Christian knows that all of your prayers for a feared loss to be avoided, uh, not all those prayers are answered. Um, no matter how hard you pray, that life is filled, you know, with loss. And so uh, if we're approaching uh, Christianity, our faith, solely as, a, as a, just another blueprint uh, for the future, but one that just is like one that's which we, we avoid loss, we're going to be sorely disappointed. And I believe then the anxiety opportunity is to reshift our approach to our anxiety, not from, oh, God, just give me a different blueprint of the future, one in which there's no loss, but rather to get to know the architect, the actual person of God. And that's different than getting a, um, a scenario from God, to get to know God, the person, the Father, and, and through Jesus. Um, it's the difference between getting to know an architect, developing a relationship with the architect versus just demanding uh, a, a blueprint to be handed over to you. You know, there's, there is a difference between a heavenly father and a heavenly supply chain. And when Jesus is talking about anxiety on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he's really trying to redirect his listeners from the blueprint to the architect. He's saying, look, you're worried about what? 
what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink, all these supplies, all these things. You want the blueprint that ensures you against losing these things. And Jesus then said, look, but, but you have a heavenly father who loves you, knows that you need all of these things. Notice that Jesus never promises, and then for the next you know, rest of your life, here's what you will eat, here's what you will drink, here's what you will wear. He doesn't promise the supply chain. He promises the Father. And that is one example of an opportunity for spiritual growth that anxiety presents us. My guest is Curtis Chang. He's in San Jose, California. And uh, the book, The Anxiety Opportunity. Curtis, we've arrived at uh, topic number three. You simply call it the hijack. What does that mean? Well, anxiety hijacks us into the future. That's what anxiety does. Because anxiety, again, is the fear of some future loss. Anxiety is not about something that's happening right now. Anxiety is taking what's right now and actually projecting you into the future and then sort of taunting you with all sorts of scary possibilities of loss. So that's why I liken it to a hijacker. It's hijacking you into a different time, uh, the time frame of the future, which is why, you know, in that passage I was referring to on the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew, Jesus is, is diagnosing anxiety precisely as this hijack in the future. It's what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. It's the worries about the future. And notice in that passage what Jesus does, how Jesus calls us then to resist the hijacker. He calls us to resist the anxiety hijack, not by staying in the future and trying to fight anxiety in the future, Again, by with with things like, well, you're going to wear this instead. You're going to you will eat this instead. Um, you'll be okay. Uh, rather, Jesus calls listeners to come back to the present. He invites them to just look look around you right now. Pay attention to the birds, the lilies uh, in the field. What you see right now, right around you, you have a father who loves you, and you can access that uh, by being present to creation. And so uh, that's one example of, of a variety of ways that Scripture invites us to be present, to not get hijacked into future scenarios of loss, but to stay present. And it's important to, to do that, uh, one, because you're, you are then bringing anxiety more under control. It's, it's really when we keep getting hijacked further and further in the future that anxiety exerts more and more of its Power over us, so we are we are sort of draining anxiety of its power when we refuse to get hijacked in the future by staying present, especially present to God in the present. Um, but it's also again the opportunity there; it's the opportunity for spiritual growth because growth of a, any relationship, like with a person, only happens in the present. Like I'm, I'm getting to know, I only get to know you, you now, Pat, only because in, we're talking about this in the present. Curtis, right now. We've got to take a break. There's a, they, they're okay. calling me to take a break. And when we come back, uh, I want you to talk about the shame of anxiety and the name of anxiety. Curtis Chang is our guest, San Jose, California. The anxiety opportunity, how worry is the doorway to your best self This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Curtis Chang is with us. We're talking about his book, The Anxiety Opportunity. And Curtis, as I mentioned... Uh, the next two subjects for you, the shame of anxiety and the name of anxiety. I want you to cover them for us. Well, there's, there's a tremendous amount of shame around anxiety, especially in circles, and particularly in Christian circles, that do define anxiety as a sin, um, as a character flaw. And so uh, when that happens, then it becomes very difficult for us to actually approach anxiety and go through it as an opportunity for spiritual growth if we think it's something wrong with us, something 
that is even potentially sinful. And so uh, one of the steps that I write about in the book is that how do we actually um, kind of come out of that shame and actually accept uh, our anxious selves? Because we, we do have anxiety. We have anxious selves inside us. And if we are ashamed of them, then we actually are, again, missing a important spiritual growth. Because I outline in the book that actually when you look at the Gospels, how Jesus meets people most frequently is actually at the very point of their anxiety. It is through anxiety that in the Gospels, Jesus encounters people. So if we are ashamed of our anxious selves, it means we're, we're going to shy away from, we're going to hide ourselves from the actual very meeting place uh, of Jesus. Tell me about the name of anxiety. Well, in that chapter, I'm really trying to help people name their anxiety. Uh, one of, again, one of the ways in which anxiety exerts its power over us is by uh, almost remaining kind of uh, unidentified. Um, it's, we feel general. There's even a term for this, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, where we're, we feel nervous, we feel anxious. We're not really sure why. And part of the, again, the growth opportunity for anxiety is that we can investigate anxiety. We can actually name what is going on. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Know my anxious thoughts. We are uh, called to, in that psalm, to invite the Holy Spirit to actually help us name our anxieties. And, And really underneath uh, every anxiety is some loss. There's some loss that we fear. And, and when we can get underneath the feelings of anxiety to the underneath feared loss, we actually just, we can really discover something really important because what we most fear losing really is also the place, I think, of deepest growth. When we can actually understand, oh, this is what I am most afraid of in my life. That's the beginnings of actually profound spiritual growth. Tell me about accepting our anxious self. What's that mean? Well, again, that gets back to the fact that uh, many of us have been conditioned to be ashamed about our anxious self. I know I am, you know, as somebody who, uh, like I said, I, my pastoral career was ended because of my anxiety. One of the reasons was was because I thought, you know, I was sort of taught that, Anxiety is a sign of lack of faith. Uh, It may even be a sin. And so I was ashamed of the fact that as a pastor, uh, I was suffering from so much anxiety. And so um, I kept trying to push it away. And uh, I hated that part of myself. Uh, I beat myself up for when I would get caught up in anxiety. And so the move then out of shame to recognize, no, no, anxiety is not actually a sin. Anxiety is not something to be ashamed about. It's the actual meeting place uh, of Jesus. Then we really need to come to accept, you know, our anxious self. And one of the ways, by the way, that if if any listeners are so unsure about, no, wait a minute, is an anxiety a lack of of, of faith? I invite them to read the book, and in my book I, I go into great detail about Jesus and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is in all the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then John has its own version of the story in John 12. They depict Jesus as actually experiencing anxiety. So if you read those passages, it's unmistakable. And so we ought not to be ashamed about our own anxiety because Jesus, the truly human one, uh, himself actually embraced the anxious condition. And it's part of Jesus' embrace of us. He accepts us in our anxiety. He knows what it's like to be anxious. And so we can accept our own anxious selves because Jesus has been there. He's been anxious and he accepts our anxious self. Now, I want you to explain to us your acceptance move. What's that about? Well, I think this is where we all have to discover some moves that we make to get get to acceptance. And I think this will be different for different people, but I emphasize, well, I've talked about acceptance is important, but I think moves 
are really important because anxiety tends to stay just in our head. It's it's the people who are especially prone to anxiety are people who stay in their heads a lot. And as, as society, we're very much more and more less physical, less mobile. We're you know sit around look at things on the screen, uh, which actually ends up driving our anxiety higher. And so in that chapter, I'm really inviting people to discover physical actions, physical moves that they can make that actually lead to greater acceptance of themselves as anxious people. And, and I, my book, you know, describes my own version of that, but also suggests ways which people can discover their own acceptance moves. Curtis Chang, our guest, talking about the anxiety opportunity what is the anxiety formula, Curtis? What can you tell us there? Well, the uh, the formula, there's two formulas that I offer. So one is anxiety equals loss times avoidance. Anxiety equals loss times avoidance. And that's really saying anxiety equals loss. It's our fear of loss. Uh, but we can't actually change loss. We are all destined for loss in our lives. We, we you know, Every one of us, because we're all going to die in the end. Like in the end, in the end, we're all going to lose everything. The anxiety equals loss times avoidance tells us actually we drive up our anxiety the more that we live our lives trying to avoid loss, trying to structure our lives and our minds to avoid loss. Not just to manage like loss, and, and, and but, but to actually try to avoid it. Because what we're doing is we're avoiding something that is unavoidable. Loss is unavoidable in life, uh, but when we try to avoid loss, we are actually multiplying our anxiety. That's why anxiety equals loss times avoidance, because we're like the hamster running in a hamster wheel. We can't ever get there. Um, and that's what, uh, how I describe all the various moves we can make in avoidance. We're actually driving up anxiety. And so the key then there is to, like, how do we lower our avoidance? Um, how do we replace our avoidance with something else that doesn't multiply uh, our fear of loss? What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Question mark. Uh, what, what are you writing there, Curtis? What's that mean? That's really helping people understand the loss that they fear. Um, this is, again, uh, Another example of an opportunity uh, in anxiety is anxiety invites us to identify what is it that we most fear losing in our lives. And that's going to be really different for different people, which is why anxiety is this very um, sort of finely tuned diagnostic, spiritual diagnostic for our lives, because we may feel anxious, and what that is is, is, is is an invitation by God, like I said from Psalm 139, to search uh, me and know me, know my anxious thoughts, and see, the next verse is see, if there is any wrong way within me. And so uh, oftentimes, underneath our, our lost fear of loss, again, is some way that we have sought to avoid that loss, and perhaps we have given ourselves to something, some force, some practice that guarantees loss, not in the Jesus-centered way, but through some other ways. And that's really what idolatry is. Um, what, how, what idols are are uh, forces, things that promise us that we can avoid loss if we give our allegiance to this thing, uh, this practice, this person, uh, this um, political party, this whatever in our lives, uh, whatever we go to to try to uh, believing that this is how we will avoid loss in our lives, there's a good chance that that is an idol in our life. Um, and so the, the question, what do we have to lose, is really that diagnostic question, what am I afraid of losing? What am I, how am I trying to avoid that loss? And is that move, uh, is that, is that you know, uh, move that I'm making to try to avoid loss, is that actually taking me into trusting something other than God himself? Next topic for you is how we try to avoid loss. 
Well, this is, again, where we all, uh, I'm trying to help, anxiety is an opportunity to diagnose, you know, what are the avoidance moves that we make? Um, so, for example, uh, how I try to avoid loss is through thinking about it. Uh, and what that does, and because I'm a thinker, and so uh, what that leads me to is what uh, psychologists call is rumination. Rumination is when we turn a thought over and over and over and over again, and we get stuck with it. We're stuck to a pattern thought, and listeners may know what I'm talking about when you just can't stop thinking about something. And, the, you know, a key thing to understand about rumination, um, which is, you know, a key avoidance move of mine, is it's, it's actually an avoidance move. I mean, it feels like we're actually thinking about the loss, but what we're really doing is we're turning over the potential loss uh, in our lives over and over again in the hopes that if I think hard enough about this, then I will discover some way in which I can avoid that loss. Curtis Chang has been our guest. What a book, The Anxiety Opportunity. Make sure you get it. How worry is the doorway to your best self. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll see you next weekend. Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless you and stay tuned to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. So long. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.